Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the U.S. Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. I've also kind of lost my voice. Which has been fine, because this week has been a pretty light news week. This is from President Donald Trump's Twitter feed on December the 4th. The negotiations with China have already started. Unless extended, they will end 90 days from the date of our wonderful and very warm dinner with President Xi in Argentina. Bob Lighthizer will be working closely with Steve Mnuchin, Larry Kudlow, Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro on seeing whether or not a real deal with China is actually possible. If it is, we will get it done. China is supposed to start buying agricultural product and more immediately. President Xi and I want this deal to happen, and it probably will. But if not, remember, I am a tariff man. In this episode, we're going to try to explain what this real deal with China could look like. We spoke to two experts. Caroline Atkinson was President Barack Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics. And she was also heavily involved in bilateral negotiations with China. We also spoke to Mark Wu, a professor at Harvard Law School, who was involved in intellectual property rights negotiations with China while at the United States Trade Representative's office during the George W. Bush administration in the mid-2000s. Before this warm and wonderful dinner on Saturday, November 30th, the Americans had a lot of tariffs in place. There was a 25% tariff on imports from China worth $46 billion in 2017, and an extra 10% tariff on another $176 billion of imports. That means for every $1 of imports into America last year, more than $0.09 are now being hit by these tariffs on China. China has tariffs on American products too. They've gone for a slightly more sophisticated approach. There's much more variation in their tariff level. But overall, there are tariffs affecting $101 billion of American exports. That includes what amounts to a 40% tariff on cars made in America and a high enough tariff on soybeans that the Chinese have basically bought no soybeans over the past few months. Now, by all accounts, this meeting between President Donald Trump and President Xi Jinping was a great success. That said, no tariffs were lifted as a result of the dinner. At least as of a recording of this on December 8th. The Americans did promise to delay a tariff increase that had originally been planned for January 1st. So it's a weird kind of truce where each side has promised not to increase the rate at which they're bombing each other, but they're still bombing each other. Starting from that dinner, the two sides have 90 days to come up with a deeper deal. If they can't, then on March 1st, all those imports from China that had been hit with a 10% tariff, they'll be hit with a 25% tariff. If they do agree a deeper deal, then the Chinese are hoping that the Americans might eventually take away the tariffs already in place. But we're not there yet. For now, the Americans agreed to postpone tariffs. And in return, the Chinese made a bunch of promises. The Chinese agreed to toughen up on exports of fentanyl to the U.S. They have said that they will buy more agricultural products, energy, automobiles, with some things taking immediate effect. And over the next 90 days, they've also agreed to talk about issues like intellectual property protection and forced technology transfer, cybersecurity, cyber hacking. Apparently, industrial subsidies are going to be addressed too. That's what Larry Kudlow said when I asked him. We will get onto the substance, which is ultimately the most important thing. 
But first, I'd like to point out that the messaging of this dinner agreement was a bit chaotic. Yeah, it wasn't the best bit of PR that I've ever seen. There was some uncertainty over whether the two sides even agreed what they had agreed to, stock markets moving all over the place. And and partly the problem was that the two sides did not issue a joint statement. But we shouldn't single out the Trump administration here. There are examples from earlier administrations where the Chinese and Americans published different versions of what had been agreed. There might be a joint leader statement, but different fact sheets describing what they'd agreed. And here's Caroline Atkinson, who was involved in a lot of bilateral negotiations with China during the Obama administration. Here's her on the pros and cons of having a joint statement. The pros in not putting out a statement are that you can have a more vague agreement and that's easier, obviously, to reach. In many cases, the national security and foreign policy staff would not attempt to have a joint agreement because anything that could be agreed jointly tended to be a lowest common denominator. So if you avoid a joint statement, you avoid a lowest common denominator. Now, the the cons of not having an agreement is that everybody can interpret what you've committed to in a different way. Trying to be clear about what each side really is committed to do is pretty important if you want to provide business certainty and to be able to return at a more junior level and say, our leaders agreed to this, so that's what we've got to bear in mind, and that's what our countries are committed to. So let's talk about the substance, and first of all, these promises for the Chinese to buy more American stuff. If you're an American soybean farmer, this deal is good news. Relative to what we had a few weeks ago, now it looks like the Chinese are going to up their purchases of soybeans. And here it shouldn't be too hard for the Chinese to make some sort of grand gesture. It's the season for American soybean exports to China, and and there's really been nothing over the past few months. It also looks possible that the Chinese will buy more liquefied natural gas, or LNG, maybe by discouraging the use of coal. We know this is something they've offered to do in earlier discussions. On autos tariffs at the Ministry of Commerce's press conference a few days ago, the spokesperson told journalists to look out for any tariff announcements. So there it looks most likely that the Chinese will get rid of their retaliatory tariff on American cars by perhaps lowering the duty on cars from 40% to 15%, which is what it is for the rest of the world. Of course, they wouldn't be able to lower tariffs from 40% to zero without also offering zero to the rest of the world because of the WTO's rules. Funnily enough, if they did lower tariffs to zero for everyone, that could actually hurt the U.S. companies making cars in China, as now they would face greater import competition from the likes of Japan and and South Korea and and the EU. My guess is some of this stuff will happen, and we'll probably see an increase in U.S. exports of those products over the next couple of months. There is this separate question of whether this is a good idea. And, And by this, I mean the Chinese promising to buy more stuff in order to change the trade balance between China and America. This agreement to buy more stuff is an explicit policy supposed to lower the bilateral trade deficit that America has with China. The bilateral trade deficit just really isn't something the president should be worried about. We will, we promise, do a whole episode on the trade deficit. But for now, please just take our economic word for it that this number is just not as important as the president thinks. Trying to manage the bilateral trade deficit also diverts attention from fixing any of the underlying problems between the two countries. Let's move on to the other bits of this deal. Let's talk about intellectual property. 
On the issue of intellectual property, I want to split these issues into into two separate buckets. Bucket one is situations where Chinese companies or, or regulators or whatever steal American technology without any kind of consent. So that includes cyber espionage, and it includes if an American company is in a joint venture with a Chinese company, and the Chinese one just steals their ideas and runs away with them. That's bucket one. Bucket two is when an American company hands over its ideas to a Chinese partner or a regulator, but but they really don't want to, as they see it, they're being coerced. This is the forced technology transfer issue. These are all part of the U.S. Trade Representative's Section 301 report released back in March. For Bucket 1, in November, the U.S. Trade Representative's office released an update to its Section 301 report. And this update described a couple of really interesting case studies. There's one where a Chinese intelligence officer was caught allegedly trying to steal technology from an American aircraft engine supplier. Now, remember, aircraft is a strategic industry for the Chinese. They want to build a competitor to Boeing and Airbus. In another case, a state-run Chinese semiconductor company recruited employees from an American firm, allegedly in order to steal their secrets on how to make computer chips. It's not just American companies that worry about this. That report that the USTR released in November also gives examples of this sort of alleged theft happening to to Japanese companies, German ones, South Korean ones. And there have also been examples of American companies, like even General Motors, suing their Chinese joint venture partners for stealing trade secrets, sometimes even suing them in the Chinese courts. And there's a report from June of 2018 that the USTR report cites found that Chinese state-sponsored entities were attacking companies in cloud computing, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, biomedicines, robotics, and high-end medical devices. The USTR report also cited a couple of cybersecurity firms who noted that there had been an increase in this kind of nefarious cyber attack activity. And folks at the National Security Agency seemed to agree. The USTR found in this November report that, as of that date, China fundamentally has not altered its acts, policies, and practices related to technology transfer, intellectual property, and innovation, and indeed appears to have taken further unreasonable actions in recent months. This is all despite agreements with the Chinese for them not to do this. We should add a disclaimer that on this stuff there isn't great data, and and so we're having to take these folks' word But I don't think that this is a huge topic of debate, you know, whether or not this is going on. Here's Mark Wu on the history of China and these issues. Since China began opening up, there's always been issues about intellectual property theft. Beginning from the Clinton administration, there were efforts to negotiate IP agreements, often successfully with the Chinese. What we see afterwards is a temporary decrease in intellectual property violations. There would be some improvements, particularly in China's IP framework. But then over the course of time, we see a new wave of intellectual property problems leading to a new set of negotiations, leading to a new set of agreements. So we've just seen this vicious cycle happen over and over and over again, and the underlying problem not being solved. So for years, there has been a cycle of the Chinese making promises, even putting laws on its books, and then just not really enforcing them. Here's Mark again. But part of it is just their selective enforcement. So China does actually have... IP laws on its books. China actually prosecutes a good amount of intellectual property theft. Even foreign firms do win in court in China when their IP is stolen. 
But the issue is that when it serves a strategic interest of the Chinese government, or it happens to be a national champion that's doing it and so forth, they kind of turn the other way when it comes to these types of issues. The real underlying problem here is the difference in the political economy structure in China. It's the fact that there isn't a predictable rule of law, and it's the fact that the party is so tied uh, into some of the strategic industries And there's a sense that developing those industries is the ultimate priority when it comes to uh, the country's industrial policy. So the intellectual property serves as an element of that to push it forward. And when the violations take place in those areas, unlike other areas, we don't see the same type of crackdown. The Chinese can point to its intellectual property laws and say, look, we were tough to these guys. But when high tech is stolen... The accusation is that the Chinese government is just a bit more relaxed. Here at Trade Talks, we do a lot of hand-wringing about how complicated everything is. I asked Mark what a good deal on intellectual property and cyber theft in particular might look like. I think one of the problems has been that we've thought too much about what are new rules that we can write as if laws will tie the hands of the Chinese. But the issue here is not so much an issue of what laws are available on the books, but how the party state actually cracks down and enforces those laws. So I'd write an agreement that would be target-based. I'd demand that there would be certain targets that are met, and if they aren't met, the U.S. would be authorized to continue a certain set of trade actions. So some examples of targets would be no more of the commercial espionage uh, on the cyber realm. An agreement that any time the U.S. provides any evidence of commercial espionage, the Chinese are going to arrest certain officials and that they're going to extradite those officials. An understanding that any Chinese bank that provides loans to firms which are caught engaging in cyber espionage activities would be suspended from being able to use payment systems and that the Chinese government would be absolutely fine with that. So I think... I think what we want to see is some commitments from the Chinese that they're willing to get tough on their own companies. And we want to actually see results over the next couple of months of American and European and Japanese firms feeling as though the playing field has gotten fairer for them when it comes to technology, especially in these new strategic sectors, which over the course of time, we haven't seen that improvement. There are reports out there that the Chinese have announced a crackdown and an increase in intellectual property enforcement. If you repeatedly infringe on patents, for example, then the Chinese government will put you on a blacklist and you'll find it hard to get financial support from the government, issue corporate bonds, or participate in government procurement. The big question is whether that extends to the higher tech stuff. We should say that it's possible that you won't need the permanent threat of tariffs or other kinds of sanctions. And actually, the Chinese government will decide that this kind of thing would be good for China. I've been told that some companies develop China-specific technology so that the technology that they really, really care about won't get stolen. That means that China might not be getting the best technology. The U.S.-China Business Council does a survey of its members, which, which isn't necessarily a representative sample of all American companies doing business in China. But the vast majority of respondents to that survey say that the level of intellectual property protection in China limits their activities there. So maybe the Chinese government will say, actually, this would be good for us if we, if we weren't so selective in the way that we enforce things. But I think many are skeptical that, that that is the way that the Chinese authorities see things. Their growth strategy is perhaps just too important to them. Let's talk about bucket two, forced technology transfer. 
This is like intellectual property theft, but the American company might appear to be complicit. We spoke about this in episode 33, and I'd encourage listeners to go back and listen to that one if they hadn't already. We should point out that, as my Peterson Institute colleague Nick Lardy has written, it's not like American companies are getting nothing out of China. Yeah, they're making a lot of money from selling their technology to Chinese firms. China has really increased its payments of licensing fees and royalties for the use of foreign technology. If you were to rank countries in terms of how much they pay for the use of foreign technology, it now ranks fourth. It's well ahead of Japan and a lot of European countries. Though it is, of course, a lot bigger. The other point we should make is that if we're hearing all these multinational corporations complain about doing business in China, then part of that could be that they're just facing a lot more competition from Chinese companies that are getting better anyway, just just because they are getting better, not because of anything unfair. It's difficult to tell how much is that and how much is actually unfair. We should say something about how this forced technology transfer actually happens. It happens because if you are a foreign company and you want to invest in China and either access Chinese consumers or Chinese workers, then in certain industries, you have to enter into a joint venture with a Chinese company. And and the complaint is that when you negotiate a contract with that Chinese company, at some point in that process, word might come down that it would be really helpful in getting the deal approved if that foreign company could share a bit more of its important technology. Now, this may not be written into the law, but the power balance between the Chinese company and the foreign one makes the foreign one feel like it has to accept it. Well, it looks like a voluntary business transaction from the outside ends up feeling like blackmail to those actually involved in the deal. We should say that China negotiated the right to impose these requirements on foreign companies when it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. So it's not like they're breaking any rules when they require these joint joint ventures. That said, there are rules that, that many interpret to mean that the Chinese did promise not to make technology transfer a condition of market access. If you're worried about this forced technology transfer problem, there are some rules to deal with this in the WTO agreements on intellectual property and investment. But the really obvious demand for the Americans to make is for the Chinese to get rid of this underlying cause of the forced technology transfer, which is this requirement for foreign companies to have to enter into joint ventures. And and also that could help to solve some of the problems in the first bucket we talked about, which is the problem of outright technology theft. If you're operating on your own, perhaps you're less vulnerable to having your intellectual property stolen from a joint venture partner. American negotiators have been trying to change these requirements for a while, most recently through something called a bilateral investment treaty. Bilateral investment treaties aren't something that's come up very often on trade talks, except when we've spoken about something called investor-state dispute settlement. So that's a special court that foreign companies can use to sue governments. The bilateral investment treaty will include rules, and foreign companies can use these courts And that might be helpful if you've taken a case to the Chinese courts and and they're not exactly independent, and so you don't get the legal recourse that you want. These investment treaties with investor-state dispute settlement are fairly common, and during the Obama administration, they were trying to negotiate one with China to deal with this technology transfer problem. The Chinese started out with a system of a positive list, which meant that everything had these foreign ownership restrictions, unless 
it was on the list. That's a very restrictive approach to investment. Here's Mark Wu. What the American negotiators tried to do is, uh, in what we call legal terms, a shift from a positive list, which was the approach that China was taking, towards a negative list, which meant that unless China explicitly declared that it was going to reserve certain rights for certain sectors, they were going to be presumed to be open and covered under non-discriminatory terms. Over the course of time, the Chinese began experimenting with this. They've become much more comfortable with this. They've started to implement it elsewhere, but it also aligns with their own goals of shifting or transforming the nature of their own economy. But at the end of the day, they couldn't agree on all the other rules that would extend to the bilateral investment treaty. And eventually that deal never came to fruition. And one of the things that was a sticking point was just which sectors, how much they were going to open up and what types of exceptions were going to continue to exist. Over time, China has moved towards this negative list system of only forcing joint ventures in a few different sectors. And in more and more of those sectors, China is reducing the explicit limits on foreign ownership. For example, in July, China started phasing out the foreign ownership restrictions for some kinds of cars. But the worry then is that other regulations will simply pop up. Take cars. While lifting these joint venture requirements, the Americans claim that China is cracking down in other ways. They claim that China is implementing environmental regulations that actually incentivize foreign companies to carry on doing these joint ventures if they want to remain competitive. In other sectors, the Chinese authorities are allegedly using licensing rules and administrative reviews to carry on extracting this key technology from American companies. And fixing this is hard. It's hard because of the fundamental power imbalance between the companies who want access to the Chinese market and the Chinese government, who wants to make sure that they're maximizing the diffusion of all these foreign ideas in China. Here's Caroline Atkinson. On tech transfer, one of the questions there is always, well, what will the private sector companies ask for? Because you need to have some support. The U.S. government needs to have U.S. companies making an ask as well. But for U.S. companies, it's very difficult for them to, they want to please the Chinese government as well. So there's always a bit of a dance about Who's going to ask for what? When fixing this, you really need to coordinate with the private sector. But that's hard if they're worried about getting punished for speaking out. And a similar problem arises when you're trying to enforce whatever new arrangement you do agree. You need a company to be able to tell the authorities when something has gone wrong. Now, maybe you need a system where companies can report that there's a problem anonymously. But it's really hard for the Chinese then to fix the problem without telling them the source of that original complaint. There are some who say that the private sector just simply can't be trusted to make the right set of trade-offs. They say that whatever system you institute, companies are still going to find it worthwhile to make stuff in China, and the Chinese are going to find a way to steal their ideas. And the superhawks will say that that is a national security threat. And there really isn't a solution if you think that's the problem. We'll see what the American negotiators come up with. Larry Kudlow seems to think that Robert Lighthizer is very much aware of this enforcement issue. In all of this, as well as the issue of state-owned enterprises, it would be so much better if the U.S. were doing this with the help of others. Let's think more about solutions. Whatever happens, the U.S. should be working more with other countries. We've mentioned that European companies, Japanese companies complain about this. If China does this to them as well, then the U.S.'s hand is only strengthened by working with European or Japanese governments. It doesn't make sense for the U.S. to go for this alone. 
Put differently, let's imagine the Trump administration is ultimately successful at getting China to stop doing this. It's very possible that European and Japanese companies will also feel the benefit from that. But if they're going to benefit, then why not have Japan and the EU join in and maybe the Americans can extract concessions from them? The other big reason to try and do some kind of multilateral deal is that it could be much easier politically for China to sign on. Imagine a bilateral agreement where Trump is claiming victory. That could be very difficult, whereas something agreed at the World Trade Organization could be much easier to swallow. The other reason to do this multilaterally is that it could be politically easier for China. Imagine a bilateral deal where Trump is claiming victory versus something agreed with lots of different countries, perhaps at the World Trade Organization. That seems like it would be much more palatable for China. Now, multilateralism is good. Both Chad and I love multilateralism. But some of this stuff can be helped with a bilateral deal. Industrial subsidies definitely need to be fixed at a multilateral level. But bilateral investment treaties are not unusual. And it's not insane to think that that could be one outcome from these U.S.-China talks. Past administrations were trying to negotiate them after all. Though I don't think a standard bilateral investment treaty would have worked. First, Congress is unlikely to have agreed. It would have had to grant China the same rights in the United States. And I also don't think that that investor state dispute settlement mechanism would have worked properly. American companies might still have been really scared to file claims against China. I don't know. Whatever enforcement mechanism you have, it's going to be bilateral. It's going to have a bilateral element to it. Even at the World Trade Organization, countries file bilateral disputes. It would be the U.S. filing a dispute against China. Now, maybe you get better terms from China on joint venture requirements if everyone else is putting pressure on simultaneously. But if the fundamental problem is enforcement, then ultimately, case by case, it's going to be a bilateral issue. I have a bigger concern with all of this, which is that it just seems a bit weird. The Trump administration seems pretty hostile towards American companies operating in China. Is the outcome of all of this really going to be a really tough investment agreement that makes things easier for American companies operating in China? If I were being super conspiratorial, or maybe not that conspiratorial, I would say that the end result of this deal could be some kind of permanent threat of tariffs if China does something wrong. And given the history of China not following through with its promises, The purpose of that could be to send a message to these multinationals, to think twice about operating their supply chains between the U.S. and China, to remind them that things could easily deteriorate again. And so although perhaps we'll see tariffs lifted, you may have this permanent threat there. That may be right. With China, you may need to actually backstop any company-level enforcement with country-level remedies like tariffs. And maybe in places like America, Europe, and Japan, governments might want to change the rules to give themselves some subpoena power that that might compel companies to tell them truthfully about what is actually happening to them in China. Because right now, we often don't know. I would also say that although this enforcement issue is important, you also really need mutually agreed upon rules. Yeah, and I I should clarify, I don't particularly want a situation where U.S.-China relations are held together under this permanent threat of another 301 or another tariff wave on on $250 billion worth of imports. If you have a system where the US says we might hit you with tariffs whenever you do something that we don't like, but we're going to decide for ourselves what it is that we don't like, 
then you essentially end up giving the American government too much discretion. You might get an administration that is too aggressive, so much so that the Chinese stop thinking that the Americans really want a solution and that the Chinese will get hit even if they do things right. And that sets up all the wrong incentives because then why should the Chinese bother to adhere to any deal at all? We don't know what's going to happen. It's fully possible that President Trump just wants a deal and he'll settle for something that doesn't really address these deeper issues. There would be precedent for this. Caroline said that in the past, some of these issues weren't dealt with because there were other things that were more of a priority, like getting an agreement on currency manipulation or even on climate change. But perhaps those were more worthy objectives than soybean sales or the level of the bilateral trade deficit. This time, it's also possible that unrelated issues could derail the talks, like tensions in North Korea or perhaps the recent arrests of Chinese business people. It does seem, though, that if the Trump administration is really interested in addressing these systemic issues, it has a better chance than some previous administrations, at least in one way. Historically, one of the huge problems with doing deals with the Chinese is that the representatives on the Chinese side simply have not been empowered to make decisions. This time, the Chinese are definitely paying attention. At least for the next 90 days. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Caroline Atkinson and Mark Wu for joining us and contributing to all the analysis we've been doing. Thanks also to Erin Ennis at the US-China Business Council, who was super helpful. I'd also like to thank Roy McFarquhar for taking the time to explain his experience as a negotiator. And as always, a big thanks to Colin Warren, our expert audio guy. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to having a podcast, Two people with a voice is better than one. Do we have two? Do we have two? Thank you, listeners. Thank you so much. You'll have noted that I said more things in this episode than is normal, and that's that's because I was just trying to take some of the load. Yeah, cost minimization. <laughs> <laughs>